1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Elizabeth T. Huron to tell us all about her book titled The Hidden Histories of the Dead Disputed Bodies in Modern British Medical Research. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, and it's fascinating. Um, in the book, There is a whole examination of the multiple journeys that bodies can take um, after death, not just bodies, but body parts, organs, brains, Um, understanding, mapping out, investigating uh, the culture, really, and the processes of modern British medical research. Um, And this is a fascinating book because quite literally from the beginning to the end of the book, takes us from World War II, even sometimes a bit before that, all the way up to the present and shows us that there's history to be understood, but that that history very much has current implications. Um, And so I found this book really interesting. And Elizabeth, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank
0: you. Hello. It's really lovely to be with you today.
1: Before we dive into the book, um, I'm wondering if you can introduce yourself a bit to our audience and explain how you came to write this.
0: Sure, it'd be lovely. Well, um, uh, hello, anyone who's listening. It's really lovely to be with you today. Um, My name is Professor Elizabeth Huron, and I'm based at the University of Leicester in England. That's sort of in the middle of England, if you're listening internationally. And I've worked there now for about 10 years, and I hold a chair in modern British history. Um, But I'm a trained medical historian, essentially, and have done an awful lot of work on the history of the body in my career. And I've been very lucky um, to have a lot of that work actually funded by the Wellcome Trust in London. It's probably one of the main medical charities that we have in the United Kingdom. Um, might be familiar to you because um, it jointly funded the sequencing of the human genome. Uh, It also was incredibly active during the recent COVID-19 pandemic, um, funding incredible cutting edge research. So it's a very special thing to be um, associated with. And I I do feel uh, very fortunate that they've taken quite a lot of interest uh, in my work. Um, I've been, been academic now for about 21 years and I you could probably hear it in my voice I was originally born in Ireland in the north of Ireland and I moved to England in uh about 1988 and I've lived there ever since and um so it's lovely to share with you today some of the findings from the new work and some of the things that I've been working on.
1: I'm really glad um for that introduction because I think uh the work of the Welcome Trust is very apparent in the book, the importance of it, um, and so highlighting it kind of right as we're getting started, um, sets us up very well to dive into the book. Um, and I think one of the important things to think about when examining these hidden histories that you map out um, is kind of to what extent... We kind of, what lens, I suppose, are we bringing to this mapping process? Because, of course, one of the common criticisms um, that historians of many stripes um, get when examining practices that might be ethically tricky mm. uh, by today's standards is well, but back when these things were being done, it was fine. So, why are you making such a fuss about it? So I was wondering if you can sort of help us understand how we can think about today's standards when we're looking at the past.
0: Yeah, sure. I think one of the things that um, medical science hasn't tended to think about um, it's got much better at it, I must say. But it hasn't. tended to think about is that medical ethics isn't a fixed point in time. And of course, it is appropriate that we should study it in its historical context. We can't simply look back at the past and kind of point the finger and say, "Well, you know, we now know that we should have done." Um, that would that you know that would be ahistorical and um, and it would be completely out of context. But that said, you know, medical ethics is a, and it's an evolving history of itself, and it hasn't tended to have its own histories actually really, really looked at, and the reason that's important is, is because, largely speaking, medical ethics is a little bit like lots of other types of histories, um, global histories, um, histories of uh, colonialism. Um, it's only really since about the 1990s that we began to think about what happened to what could be broadly described as the poor in society, uh, those that were marginalised, discriminated against, and there was a kind of assumption that they were um, people that didn't write people that didn't communicate, they were illiterate or semi-literate, and that they didn't have histories. Well, now, today we know that's not the case. So medical science is a bit late (laughs) to come to this realization and to realize that much of its medical ethics has had a very major impact, actually, on those who were, as I said, um, essentially marginalized. I I call that process in the book... um, the way in which sometimes medical science parks things in what I call the cul-de-sac of history. You're not mainstream. We're going to park you in there and we're not really going to deal with it. And the reason that matters is because if you think about it, numerically, the poor are always the most numerous in society. And so in my work generally in all the books that I've written, I've studied the poor now from well, um, 1700, right the way through to 2000. And that's actually very unusual um, to have that long durée. And the thing that you see the most in that is just the amount that we owe the poor for many of the medical breakthroughs that we have actually made um, globally, uh, in uh, you know, as a medical scientific community. And yet we don't really acknowledge that. And so, It's not enough to park those sort of people in the cul-de-sac of history. They belong in the mainstream, just as everybody else does. Um, And that's really, if you like, over my whole career, actually, what I've been trying to do. And I brought it forward in this book to the modern period because it was always, again, assumed that it couldn't be done. And I thought, oh, yes, it can. (laughs) Let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can find those hidden
1: histories. I think that's quite often um, a great sort of spur for really good work is going, hmm, I think it is possible. Or, hmm, I actually think there is a story there. Um, so yeah. I'm not surprised, particularly given the title Hidden Histories, that that was um, a motivator. And of course, the idea of um, the debt to the poor and the, mm-hmm. their lack of voice and involvement is mm-hmm. very much a consistent thread throughout the book. Um, but it's not the only theme that's talked about necessarily. So mm. I was wondering if you could um, maybe introduce us to kind of the themes of the book and explain a bit sort of how you came to them.
0: Yeah, well, it, it was partly because having worked um, really from about 1700 to uh, approximately the 1930s, the Welcome Trust then came back and said, could you tackle the modern era? And I said, yes, I, I yes I can. <laughs> I know I can. So that was, I mean, in one sense, that was a motivation. But I also wanted to finish off the timeline and see what we had done. And I knew the records existed, the, mainly because the Victorian information state was huge and it expanded. And um, we brought in death certification. We brought in, you know, all the kind of things that uh, censuses, all the big things that um, structure our modern world. And so, you know, it stood to reason that by the 20th century, that had expanded even more. So the records were there. Um, But it was a question of finding them, really. And what I was really interested in was the fact that we had supposedly very little paperwork to do with the dead themselves. Um, And I kind of thought to myself, well, hang on a moment. We have this enormous uh, bureaucracy, And somewhere within it, it will have betrayed itself, (laughs) because that's what bureaucracies always do. They don't, you know, they ask you to fill in 12 forms, and they never actually then think, oh, what are we going to do with the 12 forms? And they reveal... Uh, a lot within that kind of paperwork, really. So that's how I kind of um, approached it. And what I wanted to understand was the post mortem journeys of the dead, um, and not just the body as a whole person, but in a in a modern era. Then, how did that become what scientists often call biocommons? Now, if you've lost a loved one, uh, my apologies for using that word because um, you know that's very difficult to hear. But the reality is that most people who enter a medical research culture, the body is broken up in some way. Um, It can be... A wonderful gift that someone gives in organ donation could equally be you know a tissue culture Um, it could help someone with a burn it might be that um, someone um, is interested in helping people with Alzheimer's and they uh, maybe perhaps donate their brain to medical research so there's a lot of ways that that biocommons is created but it is largely an undocumented biocommons because once you're merged into the whole the gift gets lost Uh, in it so I was interested in could we um, could we bring that forth could we track could we trace could we look at the medical legal credentials the ethical credentials um, of what we've done and that's a big theme in the book and um, that I did and then I suppose following on from that the second theme is really Um, How did this medical community then conduct itself? What happened to the body that was in the hands of various people, a teaching hospital, um, a coroner? a pathologist? Um, In other words, what are the kind of actor networks involved in the handling of the dead body? And was there a difference between the rhetoric of the legislation that they were governed by at that time, and the reality of what they were actually doing? And I'm always interested in the difference between, if you like, a rhetoric um, and a reality. And The third thing then was really also about, I suspected, and of course the book documents this, is the way that bureaucracy can kind of be slowed down. And when it gets slowed down in a kind of a bureaucratic process, it starts to create time spaces. Spaces in time that the legislation doesn't legislate for, but the system itself creates these, what I call liminal spaces. In other words, there's a kind of medical time that's created. And within that medical time, then, you own the body and not the people who are related to the body. Um, Of course, when you're dead, you don't have any legal rights, you're dead. So it passes to your loved ones and relatives. But increasingly, in the modern era, those relatives lost uh, a sense of um, agency with that body, because it was handed over to a lot of medical processes as medical science expanded after 1945. And I was kind of, as, and I all always am very fascinated by these liminal spaces that open up. And what are people really doing in those liminal spaces? Is it what they say they're doing, or is it what they're actually doing? And then that other great thing that all historians are interested in, which is that what is not said is often as important as what is said. (laughs) Um, And it always is. Uh, So what are the silences about this bureaucracy, this medical time, this liminal space that's being um, created? And I guess the final thing I'm always interested in, I got very interested in this because I did a lot of work on it in the 18th century, and in the 18th century, it was very difficult to time when you actually died. Medical death was called the uncertain certainty. And they had a very complicated language that went like this. And you were um, almost dead, nearing death, truly dead, absolutely dead. <laughs> and it was a kind of language. Now, it makes sense that they would be like this in the 18th century. They have a very limited equipment in their doctor's bag. Uh, neuroscience is in its infancy. They're learning the difference between heart-lung death and then of course they suddenly realize there's something called brain death and this is uh, something obviously in the modern era we're more familiar with but let me just pause a moment and let's just think about this because the 18th century surgeon has very little equipment and is in a very uncertain situation. The 21st century um, consultant in resuscitation medicine is highly equipped, highly able to do, to trace the faintest line but they're in an equivalent situation to the 18th century surgeon because they can see the faintest trace of line. And they know that there is this also liminal space in death and that medical science has been remarkably reluctant to talk about this. Um, I refer to it as in the way that a pathologist would. So it's called perimortem. So that is at or approaching the process of death. And then Uh, post-mortem, which means obviously that you are in death itself. Now, what we now understand is that that process takes longer than you might think. And it isn't the same for every human being. In fact, lots of people will approach that process in lots and lots of different ways wound uh, and I was very interested in how I, in the modern period as we're learning about that and we're going through a lot of changes in medical ethics because of it because we start to understand there's a big liminality in death uh, what then did medical research do with that did it keep people alive longer because of the need for organ donation um, did it um, uh, need bodies quicker faster you know, and that was one of the things I was um, very interested in and it's such a current thing we're still learning about this you know this book is not the definitive statement on that this is this is where um medicine is at today this is where neuroscience is at this is the if you like the the new uh frontier of medicine actually um because uh we know some things about how this works but we, this, we we're still learning a lot really
1: Thank you for explaining um, the themes, not not just listing them, but really kind of going into what the questions are and um, what you find interesting about them. And I think one of the things that that revealed is kind of the amount of criticality that you're bringing to this, right? There's, as you said, what's not said is just as interesting mm-hmm. as what is. The gaps between what's official policy and what's actually happening. Yeah. And this is something that, I noticed, um, well, it's quite explicit in the book, comes up in terms of how you in the book talk about case studies, Mm -hmm. talk about actual examples of actual people when illustrating kind of, okay, well, what happens when the coroner gets the body or how does this change um, in medical schools from this time to this time yeah. and particularly given that so many of the people listening to it to this episode are um, researchers or read researcher involved in that in some way uh, we do actually think about methods quite a lot we're mm. really interested in it and so i was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you approach examples and case studies um in your work
0: yeah sure um the book is based on a bite it's a uh, got a at the back of it is a unique data set um uh, it's uh, got entries of about a half a million entries in it. It's a huge data set, actually. Uh, one of the things that I've been known for in my career is... is um, is that I'm, I'm known for what an historian would call sophisticated record linkage work. It's a lovely term, isn't it? it sounds terribly grand. But what it means is, is that I've worked with lots of different types of record sets. And I'm known for someone who doesn't just say, uh, here's a story and uh, I'm going to use this story to illustrate this and i'm going to tell you it's representative i've never really been satisfied with that um so what i do is is to take um a representative selection of cases, usually a spectrum of them. And then I will do as much record linkage work as I can on them. Um, So I'll try to get, uh, if you like, the family story, the coroner story, the pathology story, the um, medical record from the hospital if I can. So I'll keep working around it until I can build up what I often describe as a mosaic and out of that mosaic comes then a, a fuller picture of what we're actually looking at. Um, it's a bit like going into a creative space and keep trying to go in at different doors to try to get in and around as much as you can. And what I'm really looking for there is a more complete um, picture. I'm not saying all of the pictures are complete. Um, there are always gaps um, in what we're doing, but it's as complete as I can make it. And I'm also quite conservative about it. I'd rather understate something than overstate something, so that the data, um, the quantification, uh, numbers, age, demography, all those sort of things, is as if you like, is as solid and substantial as I, uh, as I can make it. In the modern period, I'm very lucky because we do have big record sets. Um, and strangely, record sets that people have never really used before, I suppose the most obvious in the book are the big sets of um, anatomy returns that were done. And it amazed me that they hadn't been um, really systematically used um, then what I'll do is I'll look at a qualitative method. So I look at discourse analysis, as you would expect. Um, I look at um, language, word patterns, and use um, methods um, like Wordsmith and there are other sort of um, platforms that we can use today. Um, look at how words converge. I'm always interested in euphemisms, particularly around death. Um, the medical profession are very, very reluctant, often to just say the person died. They'll say things like... Um, Uh, your loved one has passed on, Uh, your loved one is no longer with us, your your loved one is absent, or your loved one is just stepped outside. Now, we know why they do that out of kindness. But if you're looking at the um, discourse that's used, it's very important to understand those uh, euphemisms and why they're being used as well by the profession. So it's a combination of quantitative um, and qualitative methods. Um, And I'll do then refined case study analysis with them, sophisticated record linkage work, and try to really build that mosaic um, so that when you stand back from it, you think, okay, there's a very large picture now that's emerging and it has sort of themes that are coming out um, uh, from it. And I think this is particularly important when you're looking You know, when you're looking at the marginalized, you're going to have to work at it and you're going to have to think a little bit laterally um, in order to, um, you know, in order to get at these um, kind of records. So when I first started working on this, um, I did a book that lasted from sort of about the 1832s. And everyone told me you absolutely will never find a record of anyone that's ever been dissected. And um, I remember being in Cambridge And it was a beautiful, beautiful summer's day. And there was a great Italian restaurant in those days on the market square in Cambridge. And I love Italian food. So I popped in and ordered um, a lovely Italian lunch. And I was sitting there and I got a great big piece of paper, sort of A3 size. And I thought, okay, if a body dies, what bureaucracy gets created? Where might it be? And it was that sort of lateral thinking that... um, process that I'm kind of always looking for all of the time where might the bureaucracy have started where might I be able to go in on a different door um uh, sort of for it so that's what enabled me to build up quite so many um case records and obviously you know it takes time it's it does take a lot of time and um uh you've got to be um persistent a little bit stubborn <laughs> um and um Uh, just final thing I would add to that really on methods is there was an ethical challenge as well in doing this because I did spend a lot of time thinking about I am in a modern period historians like to work with a hundred year rule so we don't like to come past you know more than a hundred years ago because we do need to reflect on how much we can identify of case histories um, because relatives could be connected or still alive so everything was very very carefully coded Um, it was done obviously with a great deal of confidentiality and I did it in such a way that it would be possible to it would be impossible for anyone except myself to re-identify and if I wasn't sure if there was an element of the personal in it that I felt that might be you know it could in the future lead to a re-identification or a question mark then I took it out um i was trying to be as careful about that um as i could because it's a generic that we're interested in um uh some things that were in the public domain um where families were very willing to put them into the public domain then um those obviously um one can treat us uh, in a different way um but i i think do you think you need to be sensitive to record sets
1: mm. well i think that's worth raising um Sort of as a follow up, um, because you're sensitive about the data and the confidentiality, but also in how you tell stories of individual people um, throughout the book. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit as well to kind of how you approach um, that sort of writing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm because in my um, well, for my thesis actually, I was I am a trained poverty historian, and I'm used to doing very um, I can do really detailed um, you know census linking work, um, um, epidemiologies, all sorts of things really. And so, um, what I I suppose the training really enables me to be more thoughtful at this stage in my career as to how I'm going to put a story together and which elements of that story are, as it were, serving the historical questions and which it would be intrusive of me as an historian to crash into would be the best way to say it, you know, because I wouldn't obviously wouldn't want to do that. So um I I am Always particularly sensitive as well if the story uh, relates to a child. Um, I happened as a human being to hold that, you know, that the loss of a child I think is probably one of the most difficult things that any human being can experience. Um, so um, I would be really very meticulous about those and would really think very, very carefully about how I would present that. Um, and obviously, some stories of people who uh bodies were donated or end up in dissection rooms, um, they can have traumatic stories attached to them. And it's not just actually the trauma for the family. I learned this quite some time ago, actually. Uh, I was invited into dissection rooms, and what was interesting about it, there are lots of interesting lessons, but one, perhaps one of the most intriguing in one way or surprised me was that many of the people that run the dissection rooms themselves. If they work in hospitals, they sometimes find it very difficult to work in the dissection room because they are dealing with their failures, and it can be very poignant for them. So I think it's something that people don't often think about. They think about everyone having the clinical mentality, but not necessarily still feeling that human connection. And it's important to stress, you know, that medical sciences do still feel that human connection and can do. So it's really about being thoughtful about that, really, and then sort of putting together circumstances. But I would hold back um, personal details that I felt were going a little far. Um, maybe perhaps in a case of a suicide, for example. Um, I'm just trying to think of some others that I might do. Um, maybe a uh, family circumstances. I might not explain everything because... Um, it's not necessary for the nature of the historical inquiry that we're looking into. Um, Mm. So, you know, it's one of these difficulties. The historian has a duty. They have Mm. a medical ethics. And I guess I come back to the Hippocratic Oath, actually. I sometimes ask myself, will this do no harm? That's the, you know, that is, Mm. you know, it's the basis of medicine itself. I think historians sometimes have to ask themselves that question too.
1: Well, speaking of the medical profession um, and how it operates, um, I'm wondering if we can do a little bit of a very high-level tour of the things that you go into much more detail about in the book um, about understanding the sort of threshold points Mm. for medical research and the ways in which kind of this culture um, interacts with, uh, well, bluntly, dead bodies. Uh, Sure. So
0: one of the things that hasn't tended to be thought about really is that Is the threshold points that the body passes through. So I'm going to simplify them because I think um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that actually. But in the book itself, what I kind of wanted to do was first of all, I wanted to find what these threshold points were. So obviously, the first point, threshold point, is when someone dies and death is declared. Now, as I've said, um, this can be a little bit more complex than people think. So, um, but let's assume that we're at the point of death, as it were. Then the second threshold point is, is there, be, is there a bequest after 1945 for that body or not? Now, in Britain, most bequests really began in 1952. And actually, a surprising number of bodies were not bequested at first. Um, there were people that left the body to um, medical research, but a, a significant number actually didn't. And then we enter into threshold point three, which is that if they were not um a fully bequested body at that stage. Nonetheless, the body is about to pass into this third stage, which is into the medical research culture itself. And it would do could do that in a number of ways. It would depend really where you died. But um, so if you died in a teaching hospital, for example, very common in the 1950s with the NHS, of course, um, opening up healthcare to everyone, uh, free at the point of delivery in the way they'd not done before, Um Clearly, the body is going to go to a pathologist in a hospital. So that would kind of be that way. If it was a road traffic accident, then it would be the coroner's office. So you are entering then um, into this passing over this third threshold and you're going into a medical research culture at that point, not as a bequest, but as a process of the bureaucracy of death, if you like. Um, Part of that will also be that... Um, particularly, again, in you know, from the Medical Act in 1858 onwards, there is a demand for bodies for human anatomy teaching, and that demand is always there. It hasn't gone away, and most medical schools um, need about fifty to sixty bodies per year to actually train medical students on. So um, there is then sort of uh, at this point. Um, this threshold point, we go to a fourth one. And then it's really what happens when the body is officially owned by part of this medical research culture and what then happens to it in the next two to three years. Now, today, you know, largely speaking, since the 1890s, we've had better refrigeration techniques, better preservation techniques. So the body can be kept in a way that in the Victorian period, it could not have been kept. So we can keep the body for a lot longer. So it's what then happens in that fourth threshold point that when it's crossed. And this is the moment when I um, got very interested in what ethnographers um, refer to as how is legality actually experienced at each of these threshold points? In what ways is medical science taking uh, a global view of what it's doing? In what ways is it, uh, as it were, Um, going through these sets of legal processes that it meets at each of these threshold points but at the same time it could perhaps be going around the law uh, because it can hold the body for periods of time which I mentioned earlier in liminal bureaucratic spaces so uh, each threshold point then is important because you're slipping over into this culture you're getting deeper into it And it's at that point, when the ownership of the body really does pass over to medical science. So that's what the book's really interested in. And it takes you through a number of cases, I won't repeat these here. Um, But I take you through cases where literally, you follow the body, you take its journey. Um, So that we can understand that a little bit better. And the purpose of doing that is to try to get to the points of those thresholds where disputes could potentially have happened and which essentially were hidden, covered over, neglected, or perhaps were taboo to talk about.
1: And you, in fact, um, group these disputes into three categories, and I'm wondering if you can explain um, what they are and maybe give us an example. Sure, absolutely.
0: So the first type of dispute is what I would call an implicit dispute. Um, a person dies, as I've been describing. Their body enters a medical research culture or a teaching culture, depending on what's happening to the body. Um And at this point, and this was very common in the 1950s, consent is implied, but it's never really documented for the bereaved. And um, the procedures, therefore, uh, of consent, they look robust, but the bureaucracy itself is terribly light touch. And the audit procedures for that bureaucracy are actually delegated to those who are taking ownership of the body. (laughs) So... It's sort of everyone's interest at this stage to do this light-touch bureaucracy and to imply that the consent process um, is actually there. And once you've done a kind of um, uh, implied consent process, you can then potentially have an implicit dispute that can arise. This would be typically where a family um thought that a body was going for a postmortem to check just on um, how their loved one died. Uh, and this was very common in the 1950s, 60s, 70s even. Um, what they didn't know was all the other things that were done around that process and these only came to light actually you'll probably all uh, some of you i'm sure will remember around the nhs um scandals uh in the around about the 2000 and the nhs when we began to realize that we had lots of things in storage that nobody had ever really thought about how it actually got into storage and what uses were being made of it and that was a that's what that first um nature of dispute was it was an implicit dispute really that was being done so that was the first sort of set really the second set then is uh, what I would call an explicit dispute. Now, here, um, the way I could illustrate this really is um, with the coroner. Um, the coroner has very extensive powers, as you would appreciate, and it's quite right that they do. Uh, they have to decide how a person died and uh, were the circumstances, um, uh, as it were, not foul play. I mean, that's essentially the coroner's um, role. Was it a natural death, uh, essentially? Now, when the body passes over to the coroner, despite what the family might want or despite what the person who died might want, the coroner has ultimate control over that body because the um, nature of um, looking into a cause of death has to take priority uh, from it. So if someone um, said, oh, I would... Uh, like my body to go to medical research, the coroner actually can completely overrule that. And they can say, no, that's not in the interest of what I need to do. Uh, I am here to decide the balance of probability of your death and its cause of death. And I am going to decide what's going to happen. And that seems terribly sensible. But in the modern era, it's complicated because, for example, um, a coroner... May have a complicated case. Let's say it's a road traffic accident. Let's say it's the 1960s. And the person who's died has decided that they want to donate their heart to be donated. But there's an outstanding coroner's case. So there becomes a tussle between the family, if you like, on the one hand. Uh, on behalf of the dead person and the coroner as to the status of the heart. The coroner needs it for the case, but it's an organ that needs to be transplanted quickly and to fulfill a dying loved one's wishes. And the book explores that tension because it results in a lot of explicit disputes. There are families who feel very, very um, uh, when they feel that their grieving process is made much worse by the fact that they can't fulfill their loved one's wishes in a particular way. And so um, the book um, explores that second type of dispute um, in depth, really. And then the third type of dispute is a mis-dispute. Now, this a typical case would be um, where because of delayed or missing information, the family had no idea that they should make a deeper inquiry. They'd no idea, for example, that... um, Let's look at pathology. Um, Pathologists would have worked on aspects of the body, maybe for the coroner, and um, they would have established a cause of death. But the law was so loose between roughly 1950 and um, the Human Tissue Act of 2005 that... Um, it was possible for researchers to take other bits of the body that they saw were interesting to work upon. In one sense, this is the furtherance of medical science. Uh, It's an important endeavour. But it does give rise to a misdispute because a person uh, family member wouldn't necessarily have known that that was so, and they missed the opportunity to dispute or inquire um, about this. Um, so, let me give you an, um, a practical example: might be someone whose loved one was very sadly involved in uh, a crime that resulted in their death, a murder. And um, they would have thought that the coroner and the pathologist took enough of the body to satisfy the particular court case. And that would be very sensible, of course, because that evidence needs to come to court. What they didn't know was that the police and the pathologist and other researchers had an opportunity to take more research material from that body and to store it over a very long period of time. And uh, it was the case that some people then got written to and told that there were aspects of their loved ones that were being retained, um, but they didn't know at all relate to the crime or the court case that and its specifics and its forensics, if you like, um, that was necessary to effect a prosecution in court. And that came as quite a shock to quite a lot of families um, and was quite a revelation, actually, um, to... Um, a lot of um, people who thought they were genuinely working within the law um, as well. So this kind of three, this is the third step of those disputes, a misdispute. So um, I was interested then in, you know, the implicit dispute, the explicit dispute, and then the misdispute. And this seemed to be, um, in the book, it's a way of organizing the kind of body disputes that can
1: um, occur. Thank you for um, explaining the three categories and a bit of kind of what that might actually look like in a particular case. Um, and in a lot of ways, they these disputes demonstrate a kind of clash between expectations, really. Mm. You mentioned a number of times sort of they assumed this or they thought this yes. and that was sensible, but that's not actually what happened. Yeah. Um, And this is something that um, I sort of draw a link to, something else you talk about in the book of the transition from what you call the ethics of conviction Mm. um, to what you then call the ethics of responsibility. Um, And this idea of kind of, well, whose best interest are we serving? Mm. Who gets to make decisions? Um, And given that we've kind of been talking about this, you know, this phrase, the British medical research culture. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that transition? Sure. I think one of the things that the Human Tissue Act
0: of 2005, um, one of the reasons it was passed actually, was that um, after a number of um, inquiries, quite high-profile ones, um, between 2000 essentially and, well, 1999 really actually, and 2004, was that there had to be an acknowledgement that ownership of the body had largely been about what I would have called proprietorial medical ethics. And this rose out of um, the sense in which medicine owns the body. And there's a kind of um, benign paternalism is the best way to um, uh, kind of uh, explain that, Um in the way that people thought about that at that time. Uh, We do things that are in the interest of everyone. It arose out of a Jeremy Bentham idea, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Therefore, we need to do this because it advances medicine. Now, on the one hand, that's very... uh, laudable actually because you know we are all the beneficiaries of medical science i wouldn't suggest otherwise but it started to give rise to a clinical mentality which was that the person in the lab or the pathologist or the coroner or whoever had it they actually owned that it was theirs and that's what i mean by an ethics of conviction by conviction you believed your clinical uh, output must take absolutely a priority now not all clinical outputs did some like the coroner for example establishing a cause of death very necessary um, others were about people's pursuit of their own research interests and the conviction that they owned that body and that their research in agenda their research um, pursuit was entirely um, proper Now, I'm not suggesting that all of those that acted like that acted illegally. In fact, the law itself was terribly piecemeal. Um, There were statutes that went back to the 1830s. They were revisited in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And I document that in the book um, uh, for those that are interested. But what you see with those statutes is that they never actually went back to the original legislation and said, is this fit for purpose? So the legislation itself also ran by an ethics of conviction, an ethics of proprietorial uh, use of the body, because nobody actually thought to go back and actually check and this gave rise, actually, to a lot of people working within the system who actually did genuinely believe that they were working properly to the law, when in fact they were working to something that was clunky, had lots of loopholes, and was not actually, and hadn't been for you know over 100 years, very fit for purpose, and certainly not in a modern um, biomedical age. So there are reasons why we arrived at an ethics conviction and why an ethics of proprietorial medical ethics uh, was, if you like, the order of the day, but it wasn't. Uh, there wasn't enough thought put in. Should this actually be the case as we move into a modern world, democracy? We're global citizens. We want to be part of something. We want transparency. Um, today, we believe in open access uh, to knowledge, Um of course, we have the internet and everything that that. Uh, opportunity um, arises for us so what's happened is that very slowly really from the 1990s onwards there had to be a recognition and it was a painful one actually for many areas of the um, culture of medicine to move over to an ethics of responsibility You don't have a proprietorial sense over the body anymore. You have a custodial sense. You are a custodian of the knowledge. You're holding it in trust. So it's still fulfilling that very important agenda that you're looking for, those major breakthroughs for humanity. But a custodian never has a sense of ownership. They are are looking after it. They are handing it over the generations. And so they... The mentality had to transition to this um, ethics of responsibility, and in the book, that's what I've tried to show. Really, that the tension that there was in that transition, and that you know we have transitioned a lot towards it, but we there are it's not fully actually yet. It really isn't in some areas of medicine. We still have more work. Um, to do and more work to uh, think about about that um, ethics of responsibility. But it's a really important transition that in a biomedical world we have to make if we are to share in the benefits of everything that we can do um, together and at the same time acknowledge where those benefits are coming from, the poor, the marginal, um, however um, you know, we arrive at particular medical research results. So, um, my Irish granny always used to say in life, it's really important that you keep thinking and understanding that you can be sincere. And if you'll forgive my bad grammar, you can also be sincerely wrong sometimes. And that really is about that transition. We were sincere in an ethics of conviction, but we had to recognize we were also sincerely wrong in that. It wasn't fit for purpose. And that's when we moved over to an ethics of responsibility.
1: Mm. Thank you for explaining um, that transition and adding that nuance to it, right? It's not like people went around saying, we're going to do this and we know it's bad right that would not be mm-hmm. an accurate understanding yeah. um but a very easy one to kind of you know sm- smear a headline on yes it um, was, yes
0: and you know it was it's been difficult there are people who've left the uh, for example the pathology profession because they feel it has swung um too far ethics evolves it's a conversation we have to keep thinking about it um and um you know one of the compli I mean one of the criticisms at that time that was made was people were very worried about the Human Tissue Act because it seemed to act, ask such a high level of consent and I remember there was a lot of criticism around when it was originally passed 2004-2005 and the criticism was well isn't medicine serendipity you know sometimes things can just happen I mean, uh, mistakes can be made with things and, and aren't we going to lose those opportunities and you know there was genuine debate about that at the time but now you know 20 years on or so um, it's interesting there have been a number of Royal well, Society of Medicine for example has really reflected on those past 20 years and there is a recognition we really did make need to make that transition across um, so that um, medicine is now um, not risk averse it's risk aware and that's what an ethics of um, conviction does it's uh, an ethics sorry rather an ethics of conviction is wanting to hold on to and and to to hold mm. whereas a custodial medical ethics will say um, I'm, I'm I am going to be very aware of what I'm doing. Um, that's not going to stop me what I'm doing. I'm just going to make sure that I do the consent process and I keep that dialogue up um, mm. and that's a transition that we've made but it has been it's been painful sometimes and you know there are elements in the book where I document um, I document that too.
1: So speaking of being aware, um, because that's obviously a lot of the part of the idea of a hidden histories book of mapping it out, um, there's not just a sort of historian's imperative to it of, well, as historians, we want to actually understand what happened and why in and of itself. Mm. Um, You also document some very clear, practical consequences Mm. of ignoring these hidden histories of disputes Mm. around dead bodies. What are they?
0: Well, there are a number of things in the book, really, because uh, one of the things that really um, surprised me was how little, for example, we use the information that come out of coroner's inquests. Um, They should have been, as I point out in the book, a treasure trove of information. But we underfunded the coroner's service for a very long time. And so people were really pushed to do inquests. We didn't actually, at some of the pushed so much actually that handwriting was illegible um we didn't collate the information absolutely hugely valuable information that you would think would be actually collated together to tell us about the trends that are actually happening that the dead are or helping us to understand, you know, at the moment, we are an aging society. And coroners deal with a lot of aging bodies. And they have been doing so uh, really roughly since about the 1980s, when people started to live really beyond the age of 85. It became I remember when 85 in the 80s seemed, wow, someone lived to 85 by the by the 90s end of the 90s people are living to the 90s and beyond actually so um historically speaking we're aging much much longer but is our quality of life as good is a very very important question and it's a question that um all of that wonderful information from coroners could have answered but um We didn't give coroners the opportunity to actually collate that information, to make it legible, to be that treasure trove of information that we've actually needed. And that is a lost opportunity. There's absolutely no question about about that. So that's been one of the tensions um, inside the system. Um, Another tension that I touch on is that we've had a number of organ donation campaigns. And anyone who's ever been on an organ donation list will know just how frustrating it is to be waiting on the, the right Um, organ and waiting lists can be tremendously long and the NHS has done a lot of campaigns around carrying um, organ donation cards Um, as you know there's been uh, many of you who are listening will know there's been a great change in the last 10 years or so but notably under the government of Theresa May in Britain when she was Prime Minister that um, unless you opted out uh, your organs would be taken and there's big debates about, you know, um, is that ethically sound? Is that custodial medical ethics? You know, there was a, a lot of debates kind of around that. Now, out of that, the NHS went on the campaign trail in 2020 and it said, oh, um, we what we really need to do is to change the attitudes of young people. Young people then can talk to their families and they can say, no, we want to do organ donation and this will really... Create a, if you like, a grassroots movement, and that will help people who are waiting on these long donation lists. Now, this was very well meant as a campaign, but it didn't and was not based on any substantive research. This is the problem. So when I created the data set and put together all of the data I could acquire on the the bequests, what was really interesting was that the people that bequest the most are mothers and grandmothers of their own bodies they are the drivers of giving organs, of giving their bodies to medical research. And this was a finding that emerged very strongly, actually, out of the evidence base. And of course, mothers and grandmothers are absolutely fantastic at keeping conversations going in families. Um, If your granny asks you to do something, you do tend to listen, or at least I certainly used to. (laughs) So they are the people, actually, who are the linchpin of this system. But we've never had the data because we hid the data and we hid the, and we didn't want to talk about it. So I, I've just given you two examples, but I, it's just what happens when we tuck something in a drawer or we don't want to talk about it. We lose opportunities that are actually very important and they have real consequences for people in need of heart transplants, organ donation, um, and we could do better um, about it, really. And it, I guess it's why... Um, I suppose as an historian, I'm very committed to sharing that research and trying to show that, um, you know, it has real life
1: consequences if we keep getting it wrong. Mm. I thought that was such a compelling example in the book. And again, when you've just recounted it here, that the policy expectation was, well, these are going to be the drivers of the policy mm. and the investigation of what actually happened mm. um as was so true throughout mm. the mosaics you put together in the book and um, revealed a very different picture mm. um which leads me to i suppose my penultimate question of what are the kind of policy implications of this work
0: well i'd say that i mean there are a lot actually really i mean the biggest one really i think i suppose in many ways and the one i'm um I think I'll probably remain fascinated by it to the end of my career (laughs) because it is the frontier of medicine is this whole question of medical death I think it's utterly fascinating um we have really got to think about the way we die how we die most people don't fear death after all you're dead so you know you know you're dead and you're in a dead state I mean it's semantic but it's true but it's how we die that people fear and because we've never really understood this liminal space between perimortem, the act of being towards coming towards dying and pe- postmortem in death itself. And because we haven't wanted to discuss that liminal space and the fact that lots of people enter that space in very different ways, biologically, psychologically, um, depending on you know what's happening to your body, we have been very, very reluctant to look into that in any detailed way it's i wouldn't say it's quite the last taboo but it's a very uncomfortable conversation that people um, don't really want to have and it's becoming an important conversation to us because the more sophisticated that we get the more that we can trace things to the nth degree with all of our equipment the more ethically difficult it is for someone to actually manage that in resource medicine um e depending you know, it's emergency, um, it depends where you, you sort of arrive at. But for me, one of the lessons of the future is we've got to look at that more carefully. And we've also got to think about uh, do we need what I call in the book a national ethics trust, I call it a safety net, the net. Do we in a modern world need something that stands in parallel to medicine And to the courts, the law courts, because often um, difficult or controversial cases where, for example, someone has to um, hospital applies to turn off life support, that will all necessarily end up uh, in a law court if there's a dispute about it. Do we need something that's parallel to that? Do we need um, a national body, which I call the NET, um, the National Ethics Trust? Do we need those cases not to appear, as often happens? Uh, highly emotional on social media, where they're wildly debated, very difficult for all of those involved on all sides, do we need something where actually we look at it and think, okay, what is the liminality of death? What is the quality of life of the person? What are we going to do in this space? And I would suggest increasingly in where we are in a bi- biomedical world, we do need to. Now, I'm not talking about Um, legislation about um, euthanasia that's not what I'm talking about what I'm trying to say is is that we have a, a wonderful gift of biomedicine that's been given to us but it's a complicated gift and it presents families at their most emotional with sometimes an overload of information and not really knowing what to do and it's really difficult sometimes to handle that and I quote the work actually of Sam Parnier in the book. I'm a great admirer of Professor Sam Parnier at Stony Brook in Hospital in New York in Resource Medicine. And Sam Parnier has shown that the more that we oxygenate the brain and the more that we keep it oxygenated in trauma, the more that the 20 minute mark of calling death in accident emergency is a nonsense that many people under the right medical conditions will survive that and will come back with a better quality of life. So we know that liminality exists. And in an aging population, we need to talk about that liminality. So I think that's probably one of the things um, that I was um, kind of really um, interested in. Um, The other thing that I'm really interested in is pollution. We live at a time of climate change. We live at a time um, when we are discovering uh, lots of things about um, our world and the way that we pollute our world. And this is a hugely important uh, debate, especially and particularly young people at the moment. Uh, one of the things that surprised me was that we've never really used all of the anatomy or dissection data because it was never placed in open access and it was never looked at systematically and we've never looked over a long period of time at what that data was actually telling us and Uh, It has some lessons, actually, for us, some very, very important ones. So I've looked now at data from 1750 to 2000. And the thing that's interesting about that data is that in all periods and all times, the majority of people who live in poverty, uh, who uh, die in what we would call marginal circumstances of deprivation of one sort or another, in Britain, obviously, I've only done, but they all die of lung complaints. Uh, In the past, um, it would have been a mixture of what they called um, uh, phthisis or TB, um, but also coal smog before the Clean Air Act of 1952. Then after the Clean Air Act, and we dealt with coal smog. We replaced coal smog with car smog. And we're only beginning to understand about asthma. We're beginning to understand that pollution from the car can, for example, exacerbate dementia. And that people are still dying of, broadly speaking, lung complaints. So in our search for data to really understand um, the way that we're ordering our world and the way that we're polluting our world and the importance of, if you like, an environmentalism and to be environmentally aware... Because we hid all of this, we hid the lessons of pollution (laughs) and what we're doing to ourselves. And I think that was also, I kind of think, one of the lessons for the future. I've only done this in a small way, but there will be other data out there. There will be other trends that we should be um, looking at. And we should really be thinking about, um, as I said in the book, you know, biomedicine works best when it is as easy as breathing. We are so lucky if we can breathe in fresh air <laughs> because that's what the data shows. It shows that the quality of our life is significantly enhanced. And I think for me, that's that's a, a really uh, pressing uh, lesson that we need to talk about so much more. But we can talk about it in a data way. We can talk about it, actually, by looking over this long kind of stretch of time and um, And we should be talking about it. I mean, I know that there are neuroscientists they may be listening in. I know they're working on what they call the polluted brain, that the closer that you live to um, road traffic, um, the more the evidence seems to be showing that that might increase your prevalence for dementia. It's an important debate we need to be
1: having. Well, now that you've brought us through the history, the present, and now looked into the future. Um, that leaves only my final question about your immediate future. Um, the book obviously is out and available for people to read. Is there anything you're currently working on or looking to work on next, whether it's a book or something else or a whole combination of things um, that you'd like to make our listeners aware of?
0: Yeah, sure. One of the things that I think you could always criticize of an historian that works on the marginal is is um elizabeth have you find any sources by the marginal speaking in their own words and not as it were through my mediated words of data and all the rest of it so what i have been working on is over a 20-year period i've collected eight million words of stories by poor people in their own words. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. So my next book, um, which I'm going to publish with Oxford University Press, is called Histories of Nobody. And it's really about the way that poor people actually talked about their bodies in the past in their own words. Um, So if you like, it's kind of an acknowledgement that I need to stand back and I need to let them speak um so um i feel very privileged to have this amount of data um and i'm very grateful to all the people that have funded me over a period of time so i'm knee deep in that at the moment in fact i was writing it today and uh, (laughs) i hope it will um be illuminating i hope that it will be above all human um because i think that's one of the things that um I don't know. I think it's a kind of a commitment, really, that all historians have, is to bring forward all of the wonderful complexions of humanity. Uh, and um, yeah, let's see how it goes. <laughs>
1: Well, that's a very exciting project. So best of luck being knee deep in that. Um, But while you work on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing again, titled Hidden Histories of the Dead, Disputed Bodies in Modern British Medical Research. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: It's a pleasure. And thank you to everyone that's listening in and um, do get in contact with me, actually. I'd love to hear from anyone who's who's interested because it's yeah I mean history is a big conversation and aren't we all lucky to be part of it